We are. We are. We are cultivate. 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 We are cultivate. Hello and welcome to Yield Crime, where we discuss the funny, strange, and obscure crimes of yesteryear. I'm your host, Lindsay Valenti, and with me is my sister and co-host, Maddie Stengel. Hello. Hi. So before we dive into it, I did want to Uh-oh. announce we no longer have a Patreon. I have okay. shut her down. That's fair. Even though I'm unemployed right now, the episodes that I'm editing weren't getting edited fast enough to really feel like they were early access as promised. So yeah. I just kind of made the decision to shut it down. If you would like to support us still and you want another avenue, we do still have buy me a coffee and Venmo if that's something that you would like mm-hmm. to do. But Patreon is bye-bye. So I decided it would be fun to close out the year mm-hmm. with another alliteration so it's going to be disastrous December. Okay. I was going to say, December dead guys. <laughs> <laughs> dead dudes of December. That can be next year's theme. The deadest of dudes. The deadest of dudes of <laughs> December. Triple D. <laughs> Triple D Edley. I'm just kidding. We can't use that because that guy Fieri uses that. Oh, gross. Flavortown would just ruin us with a loss. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I apologize now. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Keep that in the cubby. This week, I'm going to ease us into it. Okay. Just a tiny disaster? Apertif disaster. We're going to be discussing the lost village of Triadelphia. Ooh, never heard of that. <laughs> exactly. That's because it's lost. <laughs> <laughs> but if we, if we go through the theme of our show, I really know very little. <laughs> Every episode's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, it's very rare that you're like, oh, I know a little bit about that thing. Or I've heard of that thing before. (laughs) Doesn't happen very often. Should be yield crime with uncultured swine, Madison. (laughs) Information was pulled from the following sources. 2023 WUSA 9 article by Scott Broom. 2020 The Moco Show article. 2018 Triadelphia Exposed Research Paper by Dr. Stephen Curtis. 1990, The Montgomery County Story, Volume 33, Number 3 article by Mary Charlotte Crook. 1879, History of Montgomery County, Maryland article by Colonel T.H.B. Boyd. Three links from the Archives of Maryland website. Atlas Obscura, a Brookville 1814 article. Genealogy at Prittard. Two Genie.com links. Sandy Spring Museum website. And three Wikipedia links. And links to all of these articles will be included in the show notes. If you want a playlist of all our episodes on YouTube, click the link in our show notes or in our link tree and subscribe today for not only a list of our full catalog, but a separate list as well, just of our Can You Crack the Cramp Word segments. The town of Triadelphia, which literally translates from Greek to three brothers. It's not literally, it's, it's loosely translated to three brothers was located on 516 acres of land along the south bank of the Patuxent River in Montgomery County, Maryland. Okay. 
I was wondering if it was the United States. I figured as much. Triadelphia, which was home to around 400 people at its height, was built on land that had been surveyed for Benjamin Gaither on April 8, 1725, and was established in 1809 by three Quaker brothers-in-law, Isaac Briggs, Caleb Hmm. Bentley, and Thomas Moore. The men married three daughters of Roger Brooke IV and his wife, Mary Matthews. The Brooks had nine children, six girls and three boys. So, like, they took half the girls away. (laughs) Okay. Town of many ladies. That's really... I don't know about three brothers marrying three sisters. Well, I mean, the boys boys weren't related. The girls were. Oh, okay. 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 I mean, that's not much better in my head. I don't know why. It just feels like the three girls were, like, sold off to the landowners. I can see how you'd feel. Because they probably were a little bit. I can see how you would feel that way. I mean, they had had 11 mouths to feed. Now they had three less. (laughs) Yeah. And land. That's true. (laughs) Well, let's get into it. (laughs) I solved it. I solved the mystery. We did it, you guys. (laughs) It was all for land. It was all land. Isaac Briggs, Mm -hmm. so one of the brothers-in-law, was born in 1763, Mm -hmm. the son of Samuel and Mary Briggs, a pair of Quakers, in Haverford, Pennsylvania. He was 31 when he married Hannah Brooke, age 24, on August 27, 1794. The pair would have eight children together. I mean, the land's not going to build itself, I guess. <laughs> this is true. There was Anna in 1796, Mary in 1798, Deborah in 1799. There was a Deborah back then? Yeah. What? Sarah in 1801, Isaac Jr. in 1803, Elizabeth in 1807, Margaret in 1812, and William Henry in 1815. He was definitely the favorite because he got two names. He did. William Henry. He was the son they were holding out for. Sorry, other one, (laughs) Isaac Jr. (laughs) The other one. William's the favorite now. Isaac and Hannah lived at Sharon, which was a simple log cabin that he and his father built between Olney and Sandy Spring. He also taught school in Sandy Spring and aided a man named Andrew Ellicott in surveying and creating the city layout for Washington, D.C. So he's the demon that invented that hellhole. Yes. That hellscape. Of yes. <laughs> land area. That's how they disappeared. They ruined it. They didn't do it right. So now the city's gone. Isaac would become buddies with Thomas Jefferson and was appointed as the surveyor general of the Louisiana Purchase. So, okay, he's the reason why everything is terrible. This guy started it. He's like the Quaker Illuminati. Like... He's got his hands in all these he different things. He invented He did. The surveyor general? Yeah. He also served as chief engineer for a number of projects, such as sections of the Erie Canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, and the James River and Kanawha Canal. There's more. Fun fact. Isaac hmm. was awarded a joint patent with William Longstreet on February 1st, 1788 for their steam engine by the state of Georgia. Their steam engine would be used to power steamboats. No, he's the reason for everything that has ever gone wrong in this country. I'm convinced. It's all, it all, like... Isaac Briggs. What's the saying? Like, it's all, it's all the way up from the top. It comes from the top. <laughs> it goes all the way to the it's top. It's all Isaac. It's all the way to the top. <laughs> 
Thank you. He goes all the way to the top. All goes to Isaac. So the next brother-in-law was Thomas Moore Jr., who was born on June 12, 1760 in Trenton, New Jersey, to parents Thomas Moore Sr. and Elizabeth Sandifer Moore, who emigrated from Ireland. Can I just make a quick joke? I'm just thinking like the second guy after all the accolades of the first is like, he made gum. <laughs> no, no, no. And then like that. He makes something better. No. He makes something better. Just wait. Oh my just God. Just wait. His father, so Thomas Moore Sr., was a merchant and a miller, Mm -hmm. and Thomas Jr. took up work as a cabinet maker. Mm. He was 31 when he married Mary Brooke, who was 34, on September 21st, 1791. Oh my God, they're already half dead. Right. God. Why'd they wait so long? What thornbacks? Wow. (laughs) What thornbacks? Is that what you said? (laughs) What thornbacks? I thought he said a couple of wet thornbacks, and I was like, gross. Why are they wet? I don't know. They're so moist. You know, Maryland, so wet. Just such a wet climate. So many wet, older people, older singles. So so swampy in Maryland. It's just so damp. They can't. Perpetually damp. The pair would have four children together. Mary Jr. in 1794, Asa in 1797, Anne in 1799, and Caleb in 1802. The couple lived in a home named Longwood between Olney and Brookville. Hmm. Here comes the fun fact. Fun fact. Okay. Thomas created a patent in 1803 for the very first icebox and went on to coin the term refrigerator. The original refrigerator was an oval cedar tub about 18 inches deep that contained a tin box with square corners that could hold 22 pounds of printed butter. So like 22 pound sticks of butter. Yeah. The design allowed for small lumps of ice to be placed between the tin and the wood. The ice box could travel up to 20 miles on the warmest day of the year, and the butter would still have retained its shape, and there would still be some ice left over in the container. Second fun fact. President Thomas Jefferson and other members of the federal government used Thomas's refrigerators. Yeah, because that would have been a high-end item at that point. Yep. And also, let's not forget, TJ was an asshole, okay? Like, total dick. If he liked you, you were probably not great. Jesus. <laughs> Look what I did. I made an icebox. Aren't we like, we're related to him, aren't we? I think we are. Oh, Jefferson? No. Uh, I think so. I don't remember. He wasn't that great. The thank you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I mean, thought you meant. Did he do I thought you were talking about this Thomas, the Thomas that made the icebox, not Thomas Jefferson. No. No, I was saying, I was Thomas, like, if you hung out with TJ Thomas Jefferson, you suck. Oh, okay. It just said he bought it, not that they were like buddy buddies. Not like that Isaac guy who was all like... Yeah, but I bet he was like, what's this, Thomas? <laughs> Tell me more, Thomas. I want to know all of your secrets. Thomas also was a noted engineer, working on such projects as the James River Canal, the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal, and the construction of the Mm -hmm. causeway from Mason Island, which is now Roosevelt Island, in the Potomac River to the Virginia shore. For the last one, he was paid $24,000 in 1805, which today Um, is $631,000. 
For just that one project. Yeah. To construct a causeway. And he made a fridge. Yeah, it was, it's convenient that he was like on all the canals that the previous guy was yeah. on to. I think that's kind of how like, they wow. met. Yeah, they're like, listen, you don't know how to make a canal. I don't either. <laughs> Let's just make a bunch of money. <laughs> Let's do it ruin, together. Ruin the lives of Americans for generations. Together. <laughs> Making it look stupid <laughs> and not do well. The third brother-in-law, Caleb Bentley, was born on January 29th. 1762 in Chester County, Pennsylvania, to parents Joseph and Mary Thatcher. He and his brother Eli were clockmakers and silversmiths. He was 29 mm. when he married Sarah Brooke, who was 24, on April 20th, 1791. Still older. Yeah. Unfortunately, Sarah passed away on September 9th, 1805, at the age of 37 or 38. Mm. They didn't have any kids. He went on to remarry when he was 45 to a woman named Henrietta Thomas, age 25, on August 6th, 1807. So she was 20 years his junior. Yeah, I know. Yeah. But it was, you know, it's fine. They would have three children together, Mary in 1808, Sarah in 1814, and Richard in 1819. I think it's kind of weird that he named one of his kids after his dead wife, but you do you. Well, also, they all named their kids Sarah. And Mary. Yeah. That was a really common name back then. I know. She would be like, mine's with an H. <laughs> Mine doesn't have an H. <laughs> mine's S-A-R-U. <laughs> That's just the noise I made when I came out. <laughs> Instead of Mary, M-A-R-Y, it's like Mary, like M-E-I. <laughs> Miriam. <laughs> and Miriam Bright. <laughs> She's like, I'm different. My dad made more canals than yours did. Mm -hmm. Caleb had a home built in Brookville, Maryland, where he operated a store and worked as the postmaster from 1802 to 1815. Ooh, that's a powerful person mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. Fun fact. His home, known now as Madison House, is where President James Madison hid in August 1814 after the British burned the White House in D.C., He's like, yeah, you can stay at my house. He's like, you can stay yeah, you here. You can crash here. It's cool. You can crash here. It's cool. I won't let them burn you, man. He would also be the only of the three men to do the bulk of the running of Tridelphia. So he, of, of the three, he was the one that did the most for this town. Good for him. Good for Caleb. I like him the most so far. Yeah. And with that, we'll transition back to Tridelphia. Now that you know the history of the three dudes that founded it. Yeah. What were we talking about? <laughs> So in 1809, the three men I just described to you founded the town, yeah. which would be a mill community. Isaac uh -huh. personally oversaw the construction of the cotton factory and the grist mill. And grist mills are traditionally where grains would be ground. Okay. Well, there's a lot of power and money in that. Yep. And remember, this is located off the Patuxent River. So it's water powered mm -hmm. and they use like a water wheel, a wooden water wheel. To, for the mills. Okay. The founding of the town couldn't have come at a better time as cotton mania started to sweep the nation the year prior in 1808. This was in response to the United States embargo in 1807, which cut off all trade with England and France, significantly reduced the price of raw cotton, and increased the demand for finished cotton products like cotton yarn. Mm, nice. And it's a good thing they started when they did. 
1808, only 15 mm-hmm. mills across the country spun cotton. Interesting. Okay. By the end of 1809, that number had jumped to 87. That's not good. Yeah. In a year, in Tridelphia's factory, it was originally stocked with 156 spindles, but could accommodate as many as 1,200. Dang. Yeah. I would have hated to work when they were at the 1,200 number in oh my one God. building. Oh, my God. The town, although small, wasn't lacking in industry. In addition to the mills, it was home to a farm, a store, a smithy, a cooperage. As a reminder, those are the ones that build, like, barrels, mm-hmm. stables, Mount Carmel Methodist Church, a post office, a wheelwright shop, a cabinet shop, an orchard, a meat house, a lime kiln, which sounds terrifying. Okay. A schoolhouse, a garden area, Oddfellows Hall, and 15 detached houses and 11 double houses for the factory workers and the local residents. So this is a cult <laughs> compound. It's a cult. That's what all of that is. <laughs> I mean, like, even down to, like, the lime kiln, it was like, yeah, they were doing, like, magic demon shit. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where it went. It just went, whoop. It puts the lime in the kiln. Thomas Jefferson died. His body went to that town to go down with it. Straight in that lime kiln. It's actually how he died. His soul was being taken (laughs) taken with Philadelphia. Not the lime. (laughs) By the time that the War of 1812 broke out, the desire for American-made yarn was a no-brainer. In Triadelphia, the number of spindles in operation at the factory rose from 196 in 1810 to 500 in 1814. Ugh. By 1820, over 900 had been installed in the factory, but only around 440 were running. Yeah, they probably ran out of people. Not much is really noted about the early years of the mill town, but the following was written by Isaac in 1812 or 1813. Quote, Our force of water is amply sufficient for driving a grist mill of two pair of stones, a sawmill, and a cotton spinning mill of 5,000 spindles. And we have convenient room for all these mills. An adequate dam and race are already made. A grist mill of one pair of stones and a sawmill are now in complete operation. I forgot about the sawmill. A cotton spinning mill is erected calculated for 1,200 spindles in which we now employ 196 spindles, as already stated. The profits of this grist mill and sawmill and the rents of homes, I suppose, would be equal to the current 23 expenses of our families. End quote. Although poised for success, not everything was smooth sailing for the factory. What? I know. Factories with workers before, you know, any sort of labor laws existed had trouble. Right? Triadelphia couldn't compete with other mills for a number of reasons. They had to import their cotton from the south due to the cold climate. And they had to hire workers to haul the cotton from Baltimore, which is around 25 miles away, along unpaved country roads. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be... The cost of transportation alone significantly dug into their profits. They'd have to have, like, carts pulled by, like, four Clydesdales hauling all this cotton Mm. from the port of Baltimore. Oh, man, those poor horses. And I don't know if you've seen the Clydesdale, but they're really big horses. So they eat a lot, too. So it's not just do. paying the person. It'd be funny if they ate all the cotton. Oh my god. And then they shit thread. And they're just like, what's this stuff, guys? 
In addition to being much smaller than their competition, they also weren't diversified in their product offerings. While other factories produced finished cloth, Triadelphia only produced cotton yarn. They also sold their product at a higher margin, mainly to other Quaker communities. Quaker yarn. Yeah. It also didn't help matters that the town was in considerable debt. What? You mean TJ's friends weren't great at business? (laughs) They weren't. Who could have predicted this? Especially considering half of them were like super, super rich before they even founded this town. Around 1815, Isaac left the company after they had been unable to compensate him for the work he did in 1814. Oh. Add to that the fact that he was arrested after being unable to pay over $9,000 or around $180,000 today in debt to the government, and you can understand Mm. why he decided to skedaddle. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. Thomas was left to run the failing factory on his own, and things only got worse when a flood hit in 1817. Uh Uh-oh. Too much water. Too much power. It's too powerful. In a letter he wrote to Isaac describing the damage, quote, Thee wilt have some idea of our sufferings when I tell thee the water was seven feet three inches deep on our carding room floor. The shop near the grist mill was taken away with its contents and several other small buildings, end quote. I, like, I feel like their ceilings weren't seven feet tall. Because <laughs> they had two floors. That, like, whole place would be, like, underwater. And then, like, a few of the buildings also just got swept away. Yeah. Just a few years later, the Panic of 1819, which was a time of economic depression, hit and the death knell started to ring for the failing factory. Mm. Thomas passed away in 1822 after contracting a fever, and following his death, Caleb and Isaac attempted to sell their shares of the business. They still hadn't sold anything by the time Isaac passed away just three years later in 1825 after contracting malaria. Mm, Getting malaria in Maryland. He contracted that when he was doing one of his canal jobs. Mm, Rough. When it became clear that it wasn't going to sell, Caleb and his partners, who most of them were his descendants and the descendants of Thomas and Isaac, as well as another like random guy. The secret benefactor of the city. (laughs) The secret Quaker. They decided to lease the property to another Quaker named Samuel P. Gilpin, who eventually purchased the factory when the lease ended in 1830. Fun fact. Samuel couldn't pay the debt either. And he went on to flee the country. Oh, where did he go? I don't know. Away. He was like, deuces, and then just skedaddled. (laughs) He was like, this was a bad investment on my part. (laughs) Sorry, TJ. (laughs) Gotta go. It was then purchased by another Quaker named Edward Painter, who also failed to turn a profit. Quakers are just really bad with money. (laughs) Apparently. Because it was sold a final time to a non-Quaker named Thomas Lansdale in 1840. Uh Thomas Lansdale was born on May 19, 1808, to parents Richard and Jemima Hyatt Lansdale. Thomas married Harriet Franklin on December 11, 1834. I couldn't find out her age. And the pair would have seven children together. Samuel in 1835, Richard Jr. in 1837, Mary in 1841, Thomas Jr. in 1844, Elizabeth in 1850, Ella in 1852, and Beverly in 1855. Don't see many Beverlys. 
No. Thomas was the first manager to introduce steam into the factory for the purpose of heating. So it wouldn't be freezing cold in the winter. Yeah. Like good, but also like, like it, uh, yeah. Yeah. I don't know how that worked. I'm hoping nobody got scalded by steam in that process. You know, it happened every now and then. Yeah. Stepping on the vent or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He also helped invent the first wood planing machines and invented the metallic yoke that is used for swinging bells little top piece that the bell hangs under. He also made Tridelphia profitable again when their grist mills were used to grind most of the grain in the lower half of the county. Nice. Making making the Quaker's oats. Oh my god, he was. He was. I didn't even think about that. (laughs) He was. He was. That's him. That's him. (laughs) That's, That's him on the box. That's actually him, you guys. That's like actually his photo. It's not Benjamin Franklin like we all think it is. No, it's just like the Quaker, the oat, the Quaker man with the oats from Philadelphia. Like you don't know, you don't know him. You don't know him. He's got like a scratch on his ear. He knows that. He's not even really That's a Quaker, but they were like, "Hey, this guy should be the face of the Quaker oats." He was like, "Sure, why not?" He's like, "I guess those are my oats." As long as it sells, I don't care. Even under new management. Not everything was great. A fire broke out in 1843 that destroyed the entire factory. I was just going to say, he's going to eliminate the entire town. Sawmill, (laughs) grains, like everything that could catch fire. Thankfully, it was only the factory. It's like the cotton factory. Ensuring that 100 employees could no longer work. After it was repaired, it was flooded again in 1847. Hot and cold, I guess. Totally. In 1860, another fire destroyed a number of buildings that were owned by the factory, including Thomas's home. What do they say? I know, brother, we're right there. It's a geographical oddity. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's dry enough to have fires all the time and also damp enough to have flash floods, floods all the time. Yep. And you just have, what, fire year and water year based on... Um, it's like every other? Kinda, yeah. You, what? <laughs> so. It's the year of the fires. It's the year of fires. You know why? It's the lime kilns. Everybody had to like moisten themselves before they went to work. They're like, it's fire year. Can we do water again next year? Put on your wet pants. <laughs> you go to work today. It's a fire year. It's a fire year. The April 6th, the 1860 edition of the Montgomery County Sentinel published the following about the fire. Quote, about two o'clock on Monday morning last, the dwelling of Mr. Thomas Lansdale at Tridelphia in this county was discovered to be on fire. Mr. L and his family escaped in their night clothes, saving nothing more than they had on. Valuable and important papers were consumed. Loss of property estimated at $2,500. No insurance. Mm-hmm. End quote. Ooh, why are they going to put the insurance on? That's some shady (laughs) reporting. The damages would be around $93,000 today. Wow. Should have insured that on a wet year. (laughs) (laughs) You prayed to the wrong gods, Quakers. (laughs) Why? No. When When you were originally like, here's what they wrote about the fire, I just immediately thought it was bad period because everybody would have experienced it it was hot 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 (laughs) the factory fire it was bad (laughs) 
Things burned. (laughs) Back to you, Frank. (laughs) The Civil War made it difficult to import cotton from the South following this. I mean... (laughs) I don't understand why, but... It's a surprise to me why a war would... Okay. Strange, I know. You can't have our cotton anymore. It's like a luxury drug item. Cotton trafficking. Then there was the flood of July 24th, 1868. (sighs) Oh no, it's down to the day. One diary entry from that day read, quote, Great flood in Ellicott City. 40 to 60 persons drowned. Number of houses washed away. Also, several houses washed away in Tridelphia. End quote. I really, I need to know what the landscape of this town is because these floods are so devastating consistently. Like, I think it's a floodplain. It has to be a floodplain. There's, there's no kind of way around that, especially if there were canals maybe like in the area too, but. I know there's like maps of what it used to look like and stuff, but there's areas where the water was diverged, you know, throughout town. Mm -hmm. So like when the river overflew, it like went everywhere. It wasn't just like in one specific section of the city. It went like all over the place. According to an article titled Tridelphia, the Three Brothers, the personal recollections of a lost village by one who knew and loved the place. Some anonymous guy. Wow. Quote, the disastrous flood of 1868 had swept the village away leaving only the bare and broken walls of the cotton factory, grist mill, church, store, and three dwellings, all of which have become more dilapidated since the flood, thus giving additional gloom and sadness to every aspect of desolation that the ruins of the village presented. End quote. Mm. Thomas passed away on October 24th, 1878, and the following year his widow purchased the property for $6,000, or around $185,000 today, and her son Thomas took over its management. Attempts were made to rebuild, but the third and final flood on May 31st, 1889, meant the end for the Tridelphia Milltown. According to an article in the June 7th, 1889 edition of the Montgomery County Sentinel, Quote, Thomas Lansdale's mill at Tridelphia received damage that amounts to a wreck and his house was flooded, his family wading in water waist deep to make their escape from it, end quote. Mm. At this point in history, steam and gasoline power far outweighed water power in terms of popularity, and railroads were more commonly used for the transporting of goods. With a town like Tridelphia, which wasn't close to any tracks, it was just the final nail in the coffin for the once booming industrial town. Although the floods ensured the end of the factory operations, people continued to live in Tridelphia, although it was mostly abandoned by 1905. Yeah, guys, why? Why are you still there? There's either a stupid fire or a life-threatening flood every other year, (laughs) like all the time. What are you doing? A lot of the people that stayed were farmers, so they just like farmed the area. Yeah, but like one of one of your founders, you know, helped with the purchase. So like just go go to the left. Like I don't understand. <laughs> go to the left. Get in, get, get in those what does that mean? <laughs> go to the left. Like, just take a few steps over this way and build here. It's fine. Just go to the left. <laughs> oh, <laughs> The last residents 
members of the Gilpin, Lingen, and Lonsdale families were evicted in 1942 so that the area could be intentionally flooded with water from the Patuxent River following the construction of the Brighton Dam, which created the Tridelphia Reservoir. And that essentially submerged the last portion of Tridelphia. Okay, good. Like, why, why did it take them so long? Oh my god. I don't know. Not much remains of Tridelphia today. The cemetery was recently discovered on land belonging to the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission. The second is the Tridelphia Bell, which had originally been purchased in the 1840s for the Montgomery Company, which is what they renamed the factory, to mm -hmm. call the mill hands and to work each day. The bell fell into disuse after the 1889 flood before funds were raised in 1902 to have it moved to Sherwood School, where it continues to be displayed today. So it's kind of outside the school. In 2023, water in the Tridelphia Reservoir was significantly reduced when it was drawn down by the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission so they could conduct a sediment control project near the Brighton Dam. Thanks to the low water levels, ruins of Tridelphia had been exposed, renewing interest in the once thriving industrial community. Unfortunately, the foundations that had been discovered by a drone pilot named Tim Pruss of Olney, Maryland, would once again be covered over by water from the reservoir at the conclusion of the survey, burying the village under another flood of water. Just keeps flooding. Why? Why would you stay there? <laughs> just like, would you just go to the left on the fire years and then you come back for the flood years? Go up the hill during the flood years. <laughs> go to the bottom during the fires. And that's the lost village of Tridelphia. That's just so, all of that's just so weird. And it checks out that it's somehow a part of Washington, D.C. <laughs> yeah. I just, like, I didn't know anything about the history of the three dudes that founded it until I started researching. Yeah. And I was just like, how, how were these what? three guys so important? And then they had this town that failed, like, so bad. Yeah. Like, they just, like, horribly mismanaged this town. And it's not the workers' fault. It was just a matter of, no. like, poor planning. Because they, they were like, oh, we'll capitalize on the whole cotton thing. Yeah. And, the, and their prices were almost twice what other places were charging for yarn. And, they were the Quaker yarn. But it's, but it's Quaker yarn. The whole business model was like, of course, people aren't going to spend more money on yarn when they could buy it in a mill down the, literally down the street because there were so many of them. Mm -hmm. It just goes to show that just because you can be smart as an inventor and an engineer don't mean you're good with money. Does it? Yeah, you can invent something and still be un not good at managing things. <laughs> you just just not great at much, you know. Maybe have somebody else manage the books. That's all I'm saying. You know, you've made holes in towns, canals. <laughs> you don't need to run one. Got something you want to say? Shoot us an email over at yieldcrimepodcast at gmail dot com. We'd love to hear your story ideas. See any gifts you send our way. Or if you just want to say hello, we're pretty friendly. Speaking of friendly, if you'd like to have real-time conversations with us, consider joining our Discord over at the Cultivate Network. You can chat with us over at the Old Crimers Cubby, or catch up with any of the other great creators that are part of the Cultivate family of podcasts. Just click the link in our show notes or over on our link tree to get started today. Tired of the same old podcasts every week? 
When you're ready for something different, come give us a shot. Greetings. We're technically a conversation, a podcast for curious people by curious people. Every week, we take turns sharing a new topic, and the other host has no idea what the topic will be. Our topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. We've covered everything from true crime, historical events and people, pop culture icons, the supernatural and occult. I like that. And legends and folklore. My favorite. We're like the Dollar Tree stuff you should know. Except completely different. No matter what the topic is, we try to make the episodes funny. Yeah, you may not want to advertise that. Our jokes aren't very good. What are you talking about? My jokes are fantastic. <laughs> hey, I get paid to laugh either way. Wait, you get paid? Check us out at technicallyaconversation.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Shout out to the 11 and a half people that listen to us on Google Podcasts. Wait, you said you were getting paid? And this month, we're going to be promoting a specific podcast. So we're partnering with the Technically a Conversation podcast, which is for <laughs> curious people by curious people. And each week, they take turns presenting a new topic that the other hosts have no idea what the topic will be. Very similar to our show. They strive <laughs> to entertain and educate in a way that's loose and fun. Their topics are all over the place, from light and funny to dark and sometimes spooky. And we will have a link to their show in the show notes. Nice. And this week's listener question comes from our friend, Carrie Ann. And she wants to know, what made you want to start a podcast and how did you get Maddie in it? So it's just for you. I mean, you agreed no. to it. So I need to kind of know why. No. But I just, I really liked lore. And I mm -hmm. liked reading about and researching older cases and stories and... I subscribed to a few different newsletters where I would get these random articles and save them in what ended up becoming my master spreadsheet. Mm -hmm. And I just, as the pandemic hit, suggested it to Maddie on a whim. Mm -hmm. And then you can take over the conversation. Now. Yeah, it was it was pretty funny because it was right when, you know, the stay at home orders were kind of enacted. And I lived alone at the time and I was really missing my family and it was a really fun way to still have that time to just talk to my sister and hang out during the pandemic. So initially, because you and I were both like, you're going to be the only one listening to these because <laughs> it mm -hmm. would be as you edit. It was an easy yes, because it was just having conversations with my sister and learning something fun. It just, you know, recorded. I still do it mostly just to hang out with you, but it's also kind of fun to learn the all the new stories and stuff because, you know, I know nothing. <laughs> just a just big, huge, big idiot. Big <laughs> dumb, dumb face. Just a big, <laughs> big, dumb, dumb. You're not. So that's how we started the podcast. Mm -hmm. On that note, what's something good you'd like to share? I feel like I... Oh, I have a very victorious one. So it is super cold in my townhome on the first level as opposed to the second level. And I know heat rises, whatever. We've got high ceilings, whatever. It, I thought and in my heart when we moved in that it the windows weren't properly sealed. Like all the cold is coming in from there. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know... Of course it's not. It's a new build. They wouldn't have done that. Well, they've mm -hmm. had like silly mistakes before. So I got the 
window cling insulation kit to to seal your windows. And if that bubble isn't about to burst from the amount of cold air that's trying to get in, and uh, it went up five degrees down here. Wow. With just sealing that one window. So I was like, hey, so remember when you thought I was dumb? for saying that the windows weren't sealed. The windows aren't sealed. <laughs> like I don't care that they're double-paned. That doesn't matter. They're not sealed. So I'm going to ask the rental company if they would just seal the windows for us because mm-hmm. I did a very terrible job. And I also don't have a hairdryer. You need a hairdryer to like <laughs> really seal it. <laughs> and I don't have one. <laughs> so if they <laughs> a hairdryer, I could borrow go to your neighbor and just be like hey i don't need a cup of sugar but can i borrow a hair dryer i just really want to make my the first floor of my condo warm i felt very validated victorious. yes like i know i know where the cold is coming from i've i've lived in much more questionable houses and sealed my fair share of windows yes it's like yes i know when my my window ceiling senses are tingling. Like that's how I make the heat stay in my house is by covering everything in saran wrap. There you go. You really can't take the trauma out of the girl when it comes to places you live. That's fair. Yeah. Right. Like, why do you keep double sided tape and saran wrap in your house? I don't know. Sometimes when it gets cold and you just need. <laughs> You just need to really make make sure that the windows are, you know, doing their job. Stay make a tight seal. seal. It's also really good for keeping wasps out. <laughs> Fair. Fair. Yeah. But yeah, that's my... What about you? What's one good thing? My boy, Charlie, his... I feel like his enclosure has been really sad for a while. Like, he hasn't had enough enrichment items in his enclosure to yeah. keep him entertained. To keep him from belly flapping from yeah so i went out yesterday and i bought some new like high type things and i bought it's a bird swing which is hilarious it's like a platform okay of kind of like that that like hemp hammock material okay yeah and then it's got like four secure things to like secure it Mm -hmm. as a little standalone thing and I bought some fake like fern leaves. Mm-hmm. And so I MacGyvered because mm-hmm. the top of his enclosure has like teeny tiny little holes on it. Okay. So I used ornament hooks and like strung them through the ends of these fake plastic leaves mm-hmm. and like worked them through the, the mesh top and like secured okay. them so that they kind of like line the inside of the enclosure Mm-hmm. And then I put the things in there and mixed in some some moss with his mulch to kind of keep the moisture a little bit more mm-hmm. and the humidity. And I moved his water dish so it doesn't get so gross so quickly. And mm-hmm. when I first put him in there last night, he was like kind of frozen in like a trauma pose. Like, too much change. <laughs> so many things have changed. And then... I was in here just kind of hanging out mm-hmm. and it was so fun watching him like slowly start to explore and like go in the little hide thing mm-hmm. and like try to climb up onto the platform and like wind his way through this little like 
fake tree stump thing that I had in there that's got like the long roots, kind of like mm-hmm. you'd see in the bayou or whatever. They can mm-hmm. kind of go around. And so it makes me happy that he's happy. Nice. I should send you a picture of it because I'm really proud of it. He's not in the picture, yeah. so it won't it won't traumatize you. I'd love to see I'd love to see it. Sounds sending it to you right now. And it took a lot of time. I did like a deep clean of his enclosure. Because I was like, well, if I'm going to be cleaning everything, I'm going to, if I'm going to be switching everything up, I'm going to do a deep clean. And I try to do that every three months to make sure that like everything's properly Whoa. wiped down and stuff. Yeah, that's Isn't way, it cute? It's way better. That's awesome. Great job. Thank you. I really want him to like swing on the swing. Yeah. It's funny because he'll like put like half his body on it. He's so big. He can't fit his whole body on it. But he was like curled up half on it last night. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. So that's my something good. That's awesome. Making Charlie's home a little bit more engaging. Mm-hmm. So, All right. Shall we? Let's do it. A great way to support the show. If you'd like to help us but can't do so financially is to leave us a five star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Podchaser, Good Pods, Podcast Addict, or Audible. Looking for more content? You can find us online at yieldcrimepodcast.com. If you'd like to see pictures from this week's episode, not to mention bonus content and funny memes, make sure to follow us on Twitter at yieldcrimepod and on Facebook and Instagram at yieldcrimepodcast. On TikTok? Of course you are. Follow us at yieldcrimepodcast. Our T Public store is having another sale. So, December 1st through the 18th, you can enjoy 35% off. I will do my best to get new designs up there. In the meantime, I will be re releasing all of our current designs. So, nice. I've been periodically discontinuing some of the seasonal items, but I'm going to re release everything. So, if there's a particular design that you're like, I really want that and I want mm-hmm. it on sale, now is the time. Awesome. If you're interested in ad-free content, consider supporting us with a one-time donation either over on Buy Me a Coffee or our Venmo page, both of which are in our link tree and in the show notes. And on that note, as always, I'm Lindsay. And I'm Madison. And we'll see you next time with another tale as old as crime. <laughs>